Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Delete. This one was recorded live at Waterstones on Gower Street, which is one of my favourite bookshops. I interviewed my friend and author Emily Reynolds, the author of the book A Beginner's Guide to Losing Your Mind, which is out now and has quite recently been published in the UK and America. And I've been wanting to get her on the podcast for ages, but I thought... As it's Mental Health Awareness Week, it really made sense to do an event, promote her book and talk about mental health. So yeah, we had a really lovely intimate audience in Waterstones and we spoke about mental health in the context of dating, self-care, therapy, how to help a friend or loved one. And in general, I just learned so much from Emily and I just got to ask so many questions really honestly and really openly. And I really hope you enjoy this episode and get something out of it. If you want to come to a future live event, um, I'm doing quite a few, hopefully over the next few months, I've got a few booked in. On Instagram, in my bio, I'm putting a link to all of the live events that are coming up. So the most recent one will be in there. And my Instagram is at UK. So I hope to see you all soon and I hope you enjoy this live episode. Here it is. Thank you so much for coming. I love doing these. So the podcast has been that space where I can talk about and things I care about. One of which is this lovely lady here. Um, I've literally written intro Emily. So um, <laughs> Emily, I know you so I can remember this, but Emily is an amazing writer we started sort of following each other on Twitter a few years ago. Yeah. I used to follow a lot of your work on Vice, The Guardian, Wired. You're prolific with your writing. Also, you were writing during writing your book. Yeah. So we'll talk about that. Difficult. I was like, you're doing both. This is incredible. Um, and so the latest amazing thing from Emily is The Beginner's Guide to Losing Your Mind, which is one of the best books I've read. Actually, the best book I've read on mental health. Practical, really inspirational, and that's why um, this week, Mental Health Awareness Week, I thought we could chat and just make it all about you, really, and what you know. So I'm excited to talk to you. Um, So the beginning of the book, you start it in a really poignant way. You talk about how when you were, when you actually went in and had a diagnosis, on what it was, you said it was a happy moment, and I thought yeah. that was really interesting. Yeah. I wondered if you could talk about that. Well, I think a lot of people think of diagnosis as being kind of negative, like you're being given this label, and I mean, there are definitely elements of that that can be true, but for me, I found it quite positive. Um, so, well, firstly, obviously, you're able to access the right care, which is obviously really important. So before I actually got diagnosed with bipolar, I'd been diagnosed with basically everything else and I wasn't really getting the help that I needed so having a name for what I had was good in that sense mm-hmm. um, but also I think getting a diagnosis is really important for your sort of self-image I guess so growing up with mental health problems about 10 years ago there was nobody in the media really talking about mental health there were no articles about mental health there weren't that many celebrities talking about their mental health at least not any that I could sort of relate to And so I'd kind of come to think that I was a sort of weird, broken, abnormal person who would never be able to do anything. And I would always be sort of weighed down by being mentally ill. And so having a diagnosis meant that I could sort of compare myself, for want of a better phrase, to people that I knew and admired who were doing cool, interesting things. And it made me feel like it wasn't going to completely ruin my life, which I obviously found quite important yeah for sure with the first steps to for example like booking a doctor's appointment or whatever steps you took to mm-hmm. get that diagnosis like what moments made you go like what what was that like because 
I don't know whether there were like what it was one big moment or as a series of smaller ones. What it was a series of big moments that I kept ignoring. So basically, I'm so terrible. We were talking about this earlier. I'm so terrible still at booking doctor's appointments, whether it's like a physical problem or a mental health problem. Um, I feel like we're all. I mean, yeah. I, I'm going to speak on behalf of everyone here. Uh, who's good <laughs> at booking doctor's appointments? No here? one. No one. I'm so bad at it. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I just like ignored it and I kept sort of reaching like a really terrible crisis point and really needing like urgent help. I was like suicidal every time I went to the doctor, which is not the greatest way to get help. You know, people pass you from pillar to post and they don't know what to do with you and it's really difficult. Um, So that's something that I'm trying hard now to get better at. because it can be really difficult. Did you did you say that you had a bad experience with one of the doctors who sort of just like poo pooed it? Well, I've had look, I had quite a few. So well, the the very first time I went to talk to a doctor about my mental health, I was about fifteen. Um, he just said, "Oh, you're just a teenager," and I was like, "I'm self harming every day. I'm really depressed. I want to kill myself." And he was like, "All teenagers do that." It's like I'm not <laughs> sure if they do, but I was very shy and I didn't want to argue. So I was just like, "Oh, okay, that's that then. I guess I'll never tell anyone that ever again." Um, as I got older, I tried over and over, and I. Like, I have had some good GPs who have tried really hard. Um, but overall, I would say my experience has been quite negative. Um, and how, when, many, how, many t- how many sort of appointments did it take to get, like, a final answer on it? In the end, I had to go private to get a proper diagnosis, which is, I guess, partly because there are lots of, like, cuts to the NHS and stuff, and it was quite hard to access help for something that wasn't depression or anxiety. Mm. Um, I don't know. I think a lot of people I've spoken to have the same experience about going to the doctor, I think it's getting better. Um, doctors are like sort of getting up to speed with mental health and aren't just sort of dismissing it um, or just immediately giving someone loads of antidepressants and not actually probing them any further. Um, but I think it's quite common and lots of people with mental health problems have basically a phobia of the doctor because they just assume mm. that they're just, the doctor's just going to say, no, you're fine, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> what was the best kind of um, situation you had where someone made you feel like things could get better or just that you could manage it in some way I think the doctors that have been really practical about it so I had a doctor in the end the medication wasn't right but I went to the doctor after I dropped out of uni because I had a psychotic episode and she was so matter of fact about it like I was almost surprised she was just like really blunt and talked to me as if I'd said like you know I'd gone about a migraine or something she was just like oh well we'll just need to get you on this medication and come back in this time blah 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 and she was just so matter of fact about it and that was the best experience I've had I think because she took me seriously but also she just dealt with it like Mm -hmm. as if it was any other problem which I thought was really good yeah quite unusual actually that kind of leads on to um like when you say taking it seriously because I mean anyone who's reading the news at the moment or has a twitter account and you can't avoid people like Piers Morgan, it, it feels. Um, <laughs> and I feel like that's one of the like most hurtful things. <clears throat> Even, just to see anyone, like anyone to read that and think that it's not being taken seriously. He's someone who, I guess, just thrives off the attention of saying like, oh, it's trendy and yeah. mental, everyone's mentally ill now and all that stuff. But where, what are examples of when you've been taken seriously kind of outside of the doctors as well? And how can we as friends and family of people who are feeling this way help? Again, I think it's just someone being really practical about it. Um, like, my mum got really good at this. Well, I mean, she was kind of forced to after I was, like, constantly like, Mum, I'm having a breakdown again. And she had to deal with it again. But she's just sort of got on with it. She just, like, did practical things to help me. Like, I moved back home. She looked after me. She made me loads of cups of tea. She just, like, took me to the doctor. She took me to all my appointments and stuff like that. That was really helpful. 
and having friends do practical things for me. So there was one occasion, which is quite, I mean, it's quite unusual, but I was, it was when I was really, really depressed a few years ago. And I was so anxious, I wouldn't get in the shower. And I, I, well, I smelled like shit for a start. And also I felt (laughs) awful. And one of my friends literally came to my house and she sat on my toilet talking to me, drinking a glass of wine while I was in the shower. Mm. I mean, that's like slightly unusual. And I'm not telling everyone to like sit in there (laughs) while their friends are having a shower. But like, it was an example of like how far she was willing to go to help me. And, you know, she also brought dinner around and stuff like that and made sure I was eating and made sure I left the house and stuff like that. And I found that like... I actually found that a lot more valuable than her sitting there listening to me talk about how I felt because how I felt wasn't very complex. It was just, I feel like shit. Mm-hmm. I can't get out, out of bed. That was it. That was yeah. the extent of my like emotional range at that point. And so her actually doing something was really good for me. It sounds like really proactive. Mm. Like you didn't necessarily ask her to do that. No, I absolutely would never ask someone to come and sit on the toilet while I'm showering. Um, <laughs> but she did it of her own accord, and and it helped. It did help. It was like, and it just felt, it felt really weirdly normal, and it was like really one of the most touching things anyone's ever done for me, um, because she like listened to what it was that I needed, and she actually was there and like stepped up to the plate and did it, mm-hmm. even though it was probably really weird for her. <laughs> and you wrote a piece recently for, was it Esquire? No, it wasn't what Esquire. Was it? What, oh, Shortlist. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which was the other day, which yeah. was kind of a tongue-in-cheek yeah. things not to say to people. Yeah, it was a, sort of an attempt to do, like, click-hole mental health. Yeah, a lot re- of people didn't like that. They didn't, really? They didn't like that, no. I've, I've been in situations where I felt really guilty that I haven't been as helpful as hopefully Mm. I could have been in hindsight you think oh that was a really bad thing to say to them Mm. you don't mean you don't mean to make things worse you just think like I'm a fixer like Mm. something goes wrong at work I try and fix it but you can't fix people and you shouldn't try to and also no one wants to hear your advice like because no one has (laughs) advice that's the point so yeah what are like the bad you know the things that you should avoid saying to people I guess there's like quite a lot of stock things that like I covered in the article like cheer up or like oh other people have it worse um, or like you know, the sun like, is shining yeah or oh you know that you've got loads of things to be happy about is one that really gets on my nerves because you think oh, I know that I have loads of things to be happy about like you know oh I have a good job I have a nice family you know all that kind of stuff and it makes you feel so ungrateful like why am I still depressed when I have all of these things that should be making me happy and it again like feeds into this idea like I'm a completely broken person and you know if these things aren't making me happy, then nothing's ever going to make me happy, which isn't a great thing to feel or think, to be honest. Mm. I guess friendship aside, um, your book is amazing for talking about dating as well, Mm -hmm. kind of in this space. And I feel like that's a ground that's kind of an obvious one because a lot of our life is made up of romantic relationships or the dating scene. And people expect everyone to be like totally fine all the time and Mm -hmm. they can really take that rejection or, you know, whatever. But um, in terms of, going dating when you're feeling you're going through a time when you're not kind of feeling mentally healthy what are kind of like the top things that you kind of enjoyed writing about in that chapter but also that you felt was like a new thing that we need to talk about I think we just need to be more honest with each other about it like I mentioned in the book that there were a few incidences where I didn't tell someone for like weeks or months into the relationship that I had mental health problems and suddenly I was like oh hey here are all of my terrible like issues that you have to deal with now sorry you have to deal with them right now um and then people are like what the fuck I don't know what to do and there are some situations where people dealt with it really badly and I wish I just told them beforehand and they would have probably reacted badly but it would have been like three dates in instead of like three months in and probably would avoid like avoided a lot of 
like ignored mm. WhatsApp. I think you just have to tell people, and I know it's easier said than done, right? And also you shouldn't like open on Tinder like, hey, I've diagnosed with bipolar type one, how are you? But like, you should probably mention it quite early on. And mm. in the end, I sort of did mention it before I met people. That must be really hard. Yeah, and you don't want to define yourself by it, and you don't want to think of you as like the mental girl. Like you want them to like you for who you are, or be interested in you for who you are, and you don't want to define your entire life by that. But I think, yeah, so you have to address it, unfortunately. Yeah. Or just write a book about it, and then when people <laughs> ask you what do you do, you just say, "Oh, I'm writing a book about mental health," and then they immediately unmatch you. So <laughs> avoids a lot of stress that one. Or just send it to them in the post and yeah. be like, "Happy reading." <laughs> Another thing that I really like what you write about is obviously this podcast is like about the internet as well and how we use it. And I don't try and just make it a positive thing because Mm -hmm. I don't think it is. But I like that you cover how it helps and how it hinders, especially mental health, because there's loads of positives with the internet. And I'm sure, like you said, when you knew that you had bipolar, you could then Google other people that had it and connect with them. And I'm sure they could talk to you in a way that only they can talk to you. But then it can be really triggering as well for other things. Yeah. How do you navigate it now, now that you know more than you did maybe a few years ago as well? Yeah, I'm a lot more careful now and I try to avoid things that are sort of triggering or negative. So when I was younger, obviously I said I didn't know anyone else. Well, I obviously knew people, but they didn't talk about having mental health problems. And so I sort of just used to sit on MySpace for like 12 <laughs> hours a day, like searching for other people with Morrissey. 12 hours names, a day, like, same. Um, just <laughs> constantly trying to find other had depressed people um and that was helpful but I think now trying to move away from that has been better for me I found when I'm very depressed I use the internet as a crutch like mm. I would say borderline addiction to the internet like I don't I neglect all real world responsibilities to scroll through twitter because it's distracting and it feels like that way I don't actually have to deal with anything going on in my actual life mm. um which is not the case those things still have to be dealt with um so I try to limit my time on the I obviously fail quite a lot if you see how much I tweet but I do try my best to sort of limit and also limit the kind of things I look at as well Um, someone someone the other day defined um like googling yourself or like finding like mean things that people have said about you online is kind of the same as self-harm because you're you're doing something to hurt yourself yeah I just do it to find like when I search my own name on twitter I'm not looking for people being like Emily Reynolds is a great writer I'm looking for people being like I fucking hate her like in a sort of like masochistic way which I can't really explain but like talking to a lot of people that I know with mental health problems who like have any kind of public profile know that they do the same thing like they get absolutely addicted to googling themselves or like reading bad reviews or you know and it can really affect your self-esteem so I've got a friend who's just written a book and it's basically got like five star reviews across the board and she's had like one four star review and it absolutely destroyed Mm. her she's really depressed at the moment she's like searching them out and she's searching for bad reviews so do you cut down the amount of hours you spend on it like how do you what's your like routine nowadays I try my best I don't do that it's quite difficult because I work online and so I kind of have to look at Twitter all the time Mm -hmm. but um, I use like a Pomodoro extension in Chrome which basically blocks social media for like 20 minutes at a time and once you've like blocked like once you've you've tried to open twitter like 50 times in that 20 minutes you sort of give up and just like go and try and do something else my friend was saying the other day that she um she would she would like refresh it on her phone and then like refresh it on the screen like at the same time and it's like i mean i've done i've done that we've all done it we've all done that (laughs) (laughs) we've all done that yeah 
but it, I mean it's difficult isn't it because I feel like what, what I find really annoying is these pieces that um, in magazines that are like digital detox like pay £5,000 to go to a yoga retreat just and lock your, your phone, phone away just it's like phone there must be daily practices that we can use that aren't paying thousands of pounds to go and lock your phone away just download the Pomodoro thing okay. and block it for 20 minutes that's Good. enough I'm gonna that's enough that. time without the internet yeah um, and also a bit in your book that I loved as well was um the stuff about therapy and yeah. I guess that ties into I feel like therapy can be like a day away from the internet but then it can also be obviously seeing a therapist do you feel like um because I've actually just got back from LA and it's literally like my therapist my therapist like yeah. it's it's kind of like I just had my hair done and saw my therapist and yeah. I felt really left out yeah I, yeah I think so, people make fun of that like kind of American yeah. like that blase but think, attitude but, but I think it's really good I think it's good it's like let's treat it like you have to go to a therapist like you have to go to the dentist yeah um someone explained it the other day like because I said oh I think I think I want one because I just think it sounds sounds great she's saying it feels like going and dropping your luggage off at the door yeah and it might be that you don't have much luggage but it might be that you have had a really bad week and whatever that might be anyone can feel lighter do you think that therapy is something that we should all have or do you think that it still needs to be like restricted for the people that really need it because I don't know how expensive it is I don't know anything about it but I feel like (laughs) the people that need it most need to like have it in terms of like NHS therapy obviously that's Kind of, it's quite difficult to get that. But if you're going to see like a private therapist, I do think that everyone should probably go and see a therapist if they can. Um, I know it's like quite prohibitively expensive, which is really is like an access issue as well. But um, I think when I went, I like went to see a therapist because of like mental health stuff. But I think the stuff that I got out of it that sort of improved my life the most was not actually related to my mental health at all. It was just like my other hang-ups and past experiences and like baggage and stuff that was absolutely nothing to do with mental health and also it kind of taught me how to deal with things better and like compartmentalize things better and like if you go and have cbt or something for example it's quite good because it can teach you like tools to that you can go away and like apply over and over again to your own life um which i think everyone probably needs i think Mm -hmm. you know i've been in relationships with people that are completely mentally healthy and they like have dealt with stuff really badly and it's nothing to do with their mental health it's just because they don't know what they're doing Mm. so (laughs) going to therapy would probably be good for those yeah. people specifically <laughs> I feel like I'm having like passive therapy through other people because people <laughs> report back like their tools that they use yeah um someone the other day said that she went to a therapist and was talking about how there's a name for it but it's when something goes wrong like you spill your coffee on yourself and then you immediately think oh, your whole life is shit yeah. yes yeah. catastrophizing and I I think we all do that on, yeah. on a smaller scale but and and she was teaching me all these things and I was like oh my god I've just like got your therapy I was like you paid for therapy and then I got some of it but no I do think it should be more normal I think I think we're getting there do you think yeah I think like generally we're talking about mental health more and like asking for help is less taboo whether Mm -hmm. we're actually getting the help that we're asking for it's a completely different matter but people are less frightened to ask yeah um, which I, I think is like a good thing definitely and then I guess that ties into as well um like self care I think has become a term that isn't as alienating as maybe it used to be I also feel like especially kind of our age group maybe Mm. and younger are very clued up to that the idea of taking time for yourself and not necessarily being selfish but being like I'm not going to go to that thing actually I'm going to stay at home and I'm going to look after myself yeah what sort of things work kind of best for you well when I'm sort of like on an even keel it's just like the normal stuff like try to eat better than I do when I'm depressed i.e. I don't eat a bag of Doritos for breakfast um, 
like drinking a lot of water, keeping an eye on how much I'm drinking and stuff. But one of the things that I covered in the book was the sort of self-care stuff that like magazines and stuff are trying to tell us to do now is completely useless when you're having a crisis. Like if you're really depressed, you can't get out of bed, then you're not going to like go and buy some soap and feel better. Or, you know, I saw, I was reading a magazine today and it was like kept using the word self-care and it was basically just like a diet plan, like a mm. beach body plan. And it was like self-care. And I was like, I don't really think that's what self-care is or should be um i think it's been sort of like bastardized by people yeah. selling stuff but do you think yeah like self-care i've i've sometimes read things where i'm like i don't think self-care is spending like 50 pounds in a bath bomb no exactly, it's not necessarily yeah. gonna change your life doing that no and i think that I, that's the thing that i think particularly women are kind of susceptible to because we're constantly being told we're inadequate in order to be sold stuff mm-hmm. and i think that self-care as a concept is kind of being like fed into that um so if someone's like very depressed i think a better approach to self-care is like very small things so something like opening a window or brushing your teeth for the first time in three days or like brushing your hair something like that and like putting no pressure on yourself to do anything other than those things and congratulating yourself on doing those things because if your capacity to function is like so diminished that you can't get out of bed then having someone say that you should be exercising or like eating kale or whatever is just like bullshit it's not going to happen and it makes people feel like shit so mm. I think like congratulating yourself with very tiny things is a better approach to self care I think than anything else that is kind of being sold as self care at the moment yeah because with writing <coughs> um, I feel like sometimes that's like my version of taking time away and, and like concentrating on myself and what I think but have you learned anything from the process of writing the book more so about yourself? Ha, ha, is it like pre-book Emily and post-book Emily? Like, are they slightly different with what no. you've been writing? Or was it not like a therapeutic experience? I, mean, I, did, I found it like disappointingly untherapeutic. I was like, I want to learn something <laughs> profound about myself, but I didn't learn anything profound about myself. Um, but I was more hope that like knowing the things that I do wrong and like all the things I fucked up and passing them on to other people is therapeutic for them rather than me. Mm. Um, I mean, that's what I hope people get out of it anyway. Do you write lists at all of things like to remember about, like you were saying about the self-care stuff, like things that you need to remember to do or is it just kind of all in your head? Because I I, um, had my first panic attack like a while ago and I emailed a friend who gets them all the time Mm. and she just sent me a Google Doc of... um, Kind of, kind of a ritual of like do this, 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 and this. And she was like, "Oh, I just I read it every morning, basically." And I thought that was really interesting that you could maybe have something saved on your computer that that will help you. Yeah, well, I have a Google Doc with like the really small things that make me feel better, like opening a window or like trying to breathe in some fresh air or brushing my teeth or washing my face quickly. I have like a massive Google Doc of them. I also try and make to do lists. Like if I'm feeling really bad, like my normal to do list if I'm feeling okay is like write 15 articles and get to inbox zero and do this, that, and the other. But when I'm feeling really bad, it's like move from the bed to the sofa, like change from your night pajamas into your day pajamas, and like that's it. And like mm. I know I can do those things. And then when I've done them, I think I've done something today, and it makes me feel not less depressed obviously but it does make me feel less like hopeless that mm. you know it makes me feel a bit like if I can do that then maybe like in three days I can change into something that isn't pyjamas um, or yeah. like wash my pyjamas get into clean pyjamas like you know something small like that mm-hmm. I generally tend to just like 
sort of hibernate and not contact anyone, which I know is bad. Um, I used to just tweet, like, I feel depressed, I feel depressed all the time. And now mm. I just don't tell anyone and just don't reply to anyone's messages or emails for mm. a week. And I'm like, sorry, I was really depressed. Um, I think that's something that people need to be a bit kinder about. Mm. Um, because I, one of the things I have, because I read up about it a lot, and that's why your book is so helpful, because <laughs> I don't totally relate to some of your feelings that you go through, but I, but I need to know how other people are feeling in order mm. to like be a good human being around them as well <laughs> but one of the things was um how pe- friends of people that are depressed take it really personally like I've yeah. taken it so personally before I'm like you can tweet but you're not picking <laughs> up your phone yeah and then you realize actually that there's a reason for that it's easier to tweet when you're feeling like that than pick up the phone to someone of course yeah and there's like I've had to be really energy. kind of like it's okay if you don't talk to me for a month like I'll be there yeah I mean people do go into hibernation mode I think and like it can be quite a good if not depressing test of friendship like the things that people will they'll be like oh I'm very supportive and I support the fact you have mental health problems and then you don't text them back for two weeks and they're like oh no we're not friends anymore sorry Mm. and you're like oh okay well there we go that's Mm. that or you know you go oh I can't come out tonight because I'm really anxious and people don't like it um so I you know talking about that stuff can be quite a good measure of friendship friendship as well although it's slightly depressing when you look around and you've got like two people to text but <laughs> but then I think that's why your book is so great because the more conversations we have about it the more maybe friendships can be saved because you're like oh it's not the story I'm making up in my head that, they, that they're that they being I don't know just not wanting to talk to me actually I know more about it as an illness so I know more about how to treat them in response yeah I mean I think it's like quite natural if like someone keeps like a thing that I'm really bad at is cancelling on people so I'll like, like in a flurry of excitement arrange to meet people and then I just bail on them over and over and over and over again and also I think as someone who has mental health problems I have to be factor in that that's like really annoying Mm. and be honest about the fact that it's annoying and just because I have mental health problems doesn't mean that I can behave in consistently annoying ways to my friends and expect them to just be like oh it's fine because she's Mm -hmm. depressed and I've talked about that in the book that I used to use it as an excuse all the time for like behaving in shitty ways and um over identifying with it made me behave in shitty ways and not take any responsibility for my behaviour and then I looked back and was like the reason I did that was not because I was depressed it was because I was being a piece of shit and I was treating my friend badly and I didn't respect them enough Um, so I think thinking about that stuff carefully as someone with mental health problems is also like Mm -hmm. sobering and important sometimes yeah that's a really really good point so what so to sum it up and then Mm -hmm. I'm gonna see if anyone's got any questions Um, you can ask anything not, I mean, not, not anything. anything. Okay, not anything. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Easy. Yeah, anything nice. Um, what was the best experience about writing the book for you? It's definitely been getting feedback from other people and, uh, you know, other people recognising, like, their weird, strange quirks in the book and saying, oh, that thing happened to me or I thought I was the only person who did that and getting emails from people who were like, oh, I don't, didn't know how to deal with my friend's depression and now I do. I think the best one I got was on Amazon, was obviously I obsessively refreshed the page to see if anyone's reviewed my book, um, was a, like, like a middle-aged woman had commented on, had left a review saying that they bought the book to understand their son's girlfriend and that they, that they hoped that they could, you know, that reading it would help her. Uh, it really nice. touched me to think that like people might find something useful in it and, you know, that, that, that's been yeah. the best thing, I think. Definitely. It sounds oh. like a Miss World answer, like, I just want to help everyone. <laughs> but no, it's true, it, though. It's, good. it's such a personal book as well that you're going to want to... I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I definitely write because I want to connect with people. It's yeah. not like, 
I, I want people to read my stuff. It's yeah, not, yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> like, that's Please the good buy bit. my book at the end. It's available <laughs> yeah, yes. over there. <laughs> exactly. It is over there, and it's such a great book. And also, it's out in America, which is incredible. Is, yeah. And it's a, it's, a, it's a yellow cover, isn't it? Oh, was yes, that just the yellow. proof? Yes, yeah, it's, it's yellow. yellow. It's yellow. But they're both very... very, very <laughs> the, cover, it changed, the cover changed a lot. Sorry, I yeah. forgot. What... Um, so does anyone have any questions? If not, we can just go and drink wine and you can ask Emily questions anyway. But... So you talked a lot about when you're sort of incapacitated by mental health and you can't do things for yourself. Um, but also when you're well doing things for yourself is very empowering and very important. I'm just wondering like how you balance the two and where the sweet spot is when you're sort of coming out of a problem and you want to start doing things for yourself and sometimes it can be sort of a problem for someone to keep on doing things for you. So to repeat the question from Bethany, um, how do you juggle kind of helping, asking for help versus kind of empowering yourself and taking those steps to kind of get yourself out of a rut? I think the main thing is communicating the people around me so I think a good example is my relationship with my boyfriend um, is when I'm really depressed like he basically does everything around the house and stuff and I think when I'm coming out of it I have to be more I, I tend to, well I try to be more thoughtful about that and I try to ask him what he needs or like what he's been doing that I haven't noticed that he's been doing or I've done this with my mum as well saying like what have I completely neglected while I've been depressed and then I try slowly to like build up doing stuff for them which makes me feel better as well. So I guess it's just like communicating. I know that's like a really wanky mm. therapist answer, but um, like no, communicating and asking other people what they need and what you need to give them as well, as you know, not just taking stuff from everybody. Mm. That's a really good question because I think a lot of what I've heard from friends is that they actually struggled to allow the help in. Yeah, that's so that's a problem. if you're if someone wants to do something for you, that they kind of they don't ask for help because asking for help is really I think really hard sometimes yeah it's really really hard but I mean especially when you're having a mental health crisis or something like especially now it's happened to me like over and over again every time I'm like oh great this again like why can't I stay well like I failed and it feels like an admission of failure to ask anyone for help mm -hmm. you feel like you're going like oh I'm incapable could you please bail me out again but I just don't think that's the case like I think it's really brave to ask for mm -hmm. help you know it's really brave to say please help me, this is the thing that I need. Um, so again, yeah, doing that is also really positive. Yeah. I always feel like, oh, everyone must be so bored. Like, oh, are you feeling depressed again, Emily? Of course yeah. you are, like, again. Mm -hmm. And I feel like everyone's thinking, like, oh, great, I've got to do this stuff there again. But that's just not the case at all. When I think about, like, my partner, he's got mental health problems as well, and any time I need to, like, help him do anything, I'm not like, oh, this is so boring and annoying to have to help someone mm -hmm. that I love get better. Yeah, I, like, want actually help. want to help him. Yeah. And I find it really frustrating when he doesn't want to accept the help so no one is thinking yeah. that you're annoying or boring yeah if, quite the opposite if I, they are then bin them off yeah is my advice people <laughs> want to help people want to help yeah any other questions oh, yeah there's loads oh there's loads now yay oh no <laughs> um front row first um i was just wondering if you sort of had any advice for people who might be like worried about a friend or sort of loved one mm. who um could have like mental health issues but just is not interested in having that chat about like as in like won't really admit it to themselves or yeah. like sort of you're concerned about them and they just shut down any sort of mention of it and mm -hmm. I was just wondering if you had any advice on like how to broach that in a way where you were saying about how your partner is sometimes like I don't want the help yeah mm -hmm. and if you've got a partner like that like how do you sensitively <laughs> say yeah. like I think 
we need to get help. Yeah, it is really hard because if someone doesn't want to talk about it, then they're probably just not going to talk about it. But I think sort of, I think you have to kind of be clever and skirt around the issue a bit. So like when often when my mum just says like you're feeling depressed, I'm like no, how dare you? Like fuck off. Um, but when she, not fuck, I don't tell my mum to fuck off. But, you know, <laughs> um, uh, but you know, like if she asks like around it, then I'm more likely to open up. So like, how are you coping with this and that? Like, what are you doing? Are you stressed? Um, that helps and also when people talk to me about how they're feeling mentally that can also encourage me to open up because it feels like a very safe conversation then um, I also think if if you can notice how someone's struggling like the things that they're struggling with trying to pick up stuff that they're struggling with without really talking about it can be helpful so like I was saying about you know doing practical things for someone if you see that someone's struggling with work or you know they're not going out very much trying to encourage them to go out or like inviting them round or doing something like that without actually saying like please let me help you that can be quite a nice way of showing them that you're there and that they care that you care and you know they're more likely to open up to you then but it's really difficult and I know from like myself that if I don't want to talk about something there is like absolutely nothing that if someone says are you depressed I'm like nope nope I'm fine I'm fine I'm coping I'm fine mm. it's really hard <laughs> Um, so the answer would probably be different for everyone but yeah. like when you're like having your low moments mm-hmm. um, how do you like balance like your mental health with like your work commitments like that's a really good question um so the question was how do you balance dealing with mental health problems with with work work commitments or workload I guess we touched yeah. on some of that with like going online when you have to yeah but, yeah how do you manage Personally, that I deal with it really really badly which is why I'm a freelancer uh, because I'm incapable of working in an office um, because I'm terrible at dealing with that but I think um, actually my, my most depressed ever I was going into an office every day and functioning like normal I mean I was eating a block of halloumi at my desk and nothing else all day which was probably a sign to my co-workers that I wasn't actually okay but other than that I was like doing my job I guess like you have to come up with very small coping mechanisms again like you know doing very small things that are gonna help making sure you're eating regularly as well is quite important but just doing I don't know like small very small sort of self-care things mm. I was reading something on the Guardian the other day that said um it's like a, a memoir kind of first person essay about how freelancing made her more depressed mm. and it's just interesting that I feel like it's like a you need to know yourself so well it's like you, knowing your personality and breaking it down but that seems like a hard question to answer because I would say if you're working in an office you should tell your boss and then it depends that's what your boss is good, like yeah that's not always a good answer because I told some colleagues that I had mental health problems mm. a while ago and they did not take it very well um, and it was sort of like from then on there was kind of like a judgement over my ability to work um, right? which was bad so I guess that if your boss is likely to be receptive then yes definitely tell them but if they're not don't tell them mm. um, would be my personal advice. Um, I feel like that's the next barrier, that's the next taboo is breaking it down in the workplace yeah I think people still think like if you tell them you're depressed they're like oh well they're not capable of doing a good job which is just not true um so yeah I agree that I think it should be less taboo in the workplace mm-hmm. um yeah I just think trying to look after yourself and take day by day as well like you if you look at your calendar and you've got like weeks and weeks and weeks of work it feels completely overwhelming but taking it day by day and trying to be look after yourself in like the very smallest ways and also just like saying well done at the end of the day to yourself seems like a really small I'm not saying like look in the mirror and say I'm so beautiful or whatever like you know congratulate yourself for getting through the day because that is an achievement you might feel like shit and like you've not done anything and you've been unproductive but if you've got through the day and you're not dead 
mm-hmm. that's good mm-hmm. <laughs> that's yeah. good <laughs> yeah um so you know you said about uh doctors dismissing like teenage uh, mental health problems on teenage angst is there anything we can get to uh stop that happening or just with adults generally blaming like mental health problems on teenage angst when actually almost is like dismissal can we like as teenagers do anything can adults is there any way to stop adults doing it so the question was is there anything that we can do to prevent adults just kind of flippantly saying that teenagers are just angsty and and just labeling it as a teen thing when actually it could be something much worse i think like arming yourself with as much information as physically possible like research whatever thing you think you might have in like so much detail become like an expert on it and when the doctor says like no you're just being a teenager be like well actually the dsm says i've got this 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 wrong with me and just try and be and it's really difficult because like when i was 15 i was like really shy i like hated speaking to anyone in authority and so when the doctor was like there's nothing wrong with you i was just like okay there's nothing wrong with me i'll go away now i think just trying like it's really difficult but trying to be as like insistent and annoying as you possibly can just like keep going back and say i've still got this problem i've still got this problem um also i think there's like it's on adults to be better about that i think like in general we don't take teenagers especially teenage girls seriously at all we just basically think they're silly basically basically Mm. you know we just don't treat them with any respect like they're intelligent or they know themselves at all and as adults we need to get better when a teenager says something they're probably right not all mm-hmm. the time. Uh, <laughs> some of the time. <laughs> yeah, especially in that context, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good answer. Last question. I just wanted to know, like, like yourself, like I've suffered with like an episodic mm. uh, mental illness, and because of that, like, a lot of my relationships are quite fractured, and and I have a lot of voids that, like, if you ask me a question, like, to someone else, it may be like a simple, oh, like, you know what were you like when you were 16 or something like that mine is always some way attached to what I was going through mm. how do you like not become de- defined by the voids in your life because it I feel like there's a, a distinct difference between when I was like living mm. and embodying like what was happening to me and the times when I was just like there mm-hmm. I don't know if I can repeat that so <laughs> eloquently that's a really good question how do you not define yourself by the p- bad periods yeah. in your life? I guess it's like trying your best to look at your life as a whole rather than trying to define yourself by the points where you were miserable or sad or like empty. And also I think you do definitely, it's a bit of a cliche, but you do learn some stuff from that. You learn how to cope in a way that other people don't. You probably have like a really dark sense of humour. You only really get that if you've been like very depressed to my detriment <laughs> quite a few times. Um, I don't know I just think like and also having trying to have a sense of humour about it as well like there is definitely like some dark humour in being depressed and not going out I mean it doesn't sound funny but it can be I guess that is also like trying to approach those like redefine those periods of misery in a sort of a more empowering way I guess Mm. that's what I think makes your book stand out as well because sometimes you when you pick up a book that's around this you kind of think oh um, you know this is really deep but there is like light kind of relief as well around it just because and that's what makes you so approachable to talk about it i think like there like a lot of books about mental health there's like some grand journey at the end of it and someone comes out of it like a different person which is not necessarily the case Mm. but i think trying to have a sense of humor about it is much more important than trying to i guess it's also part of like coming to terms with yourself you know it is a part of you and nothing is going to change that and i think accepting that has been one of the most important things for me 
I think that's all we've got time for. But thank you so much, everyone, for coming and Emily for being so honest and thank writing such an me. amazing book. <laughs> yeah, thanks for coming to Waterstones Gower Street, having some wine, and I hope you had a nice time. Thank you. Thank you.